Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Chris Forbes. Chris is an environmental entrepreneur and co-founder of The Cheeky Panda, a consumer goods manufacturer which creates ultra-sustainable bamboo tissue products. Uh, Chris, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on the uh, podcast today. I'm delighted to share my insights. It's a real pleasure for us to welcome you onto the show because having that insight in the uh, the national sphere is very much what we are all about here at the uh, the Leaders Council. Normally, we dive straight in at this point in the show to the subject of leadership and bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we sort of start there because it's been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your business, Chris, just to what extent has it affected your operations? I think there's two phases to this question. I think there's the first phase, which is um, in March, um, where um, you know we went to lockdown and um, you know we had all this panic buying, particularly of toilet tissue, which is um, you know one of the things that we sell. So um, and we sort of seen these these sort of massive spikes and um, change in behaviours. We had a we've got a retail business, but we've also got our, our business to business. Um, you know, office supplies um, section part. So, you know, while we started doing really well in retail, then the other, the B2B side of the business sort of completely tailed off as, as no one was working in offices. Um, and we, we, we saw these sort of massive sort of fluctuation in terms of um, sales. So we heard our sales went up 400% um, in March um, and, and continues to sort of, you know, grow through, until June, and then because everyone then stopped piling on lots of tissue, um, it then sort of dipped off again. Um, so we had a number of challenges with that, whereby everybody's working remotely. Um, we are suddenly dealing with four times the volume of what we would normally be. Um, and, and we actually hired um, people um, during the crisis. A lot of people were sort of putting people on furlough or laying people off, but um, because there was high demand within our area, um, we then had to try to onboard people, so it's, it was completely, you know, new way of of trying to sort of manage people remotely, which we hadn't really been doing before. And secondly, also bringing in new people and trying to adapt them into the culture. I think the second part of it is that we've, we've all started to be working from, um, you know, from home until June, and then we started to get more people back into the office. And I think, you know, now that we're sort of sitting in um, October, we're starting to see this kind of sort of second wave of lockdown coming. And again, not not to the same extent of what we saw um, back in sort of March or April, but there's definitely been a spike in sort of subscription of toilet tissues and um, toiletries. And certainly for the future of the uh, the industry as well, what the pandemic has done is it's really brought the um, the discussion around sustainability back into the limelight, hasn't it? Because people haven't been using cars as much, people haven't been on the roads, people haven't been commuting to work quite as much due to working remotely, and with this discussion very much forming a key part of the um, the sort of the national um, debate at the moment, and a lot of people also favouring a green economic recovery from the COVID nineteen pandemic, 
it could really bode well for businesses working in the sustainable and green economy like yourselves. So we're, we're, we're a B Corp, which is the higher standard of sort of ethical and um, social um, sourcing of products and management of a company. And mm. um, you know, people are talking about this sort of green recovery. And I think, what, you know, the, the world's been in such a, a sort of rush over the last sort of 10, sort of 20 years. It's, we've not really had a chance to pause. And I think that, you know, we're always kind of doing things because that's the way we've always done things. And, and I think, you know, in, in, in some ways, because we haven't been sort of doing all the commuting and people are working in different ways, we're starting to sort of address a different work-life balance. And, you know, do people want to go back to how it was before or can we actually go back in a, in a, in a better way? And, mm. you know, certainly if we can use, you know, things that are better for people's mental health and, um, you know, better for the environment, then, you know, surely that's got to be a better thing both for you know, the environment and society. Can you actually see um, in maybe one or two years when COVID-19 is hopefully no longer an issue, um, the conventional sort of workplace, um, the office environment, if we call it that, can you see that coming back in vogue? Or do you think there will be more people working from home on a personal basis just because of the environmental benefits and also what it does for mental health and that work-life balance? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of people sort of travel sort of two hours a day into work and, um, you know, they need to be necessarily in the office, um, you know, five days a week. And I think there's a, a, a natural balance. We did a, a survey which was completed by about 500 people um, in June. And um, you know, the majority of people said that they wanted to be in the office sort of two to three days a week, um, you know, about 70% of the respondents. So I think that, you know, people still want to be able to, you know, do meetings with colleagues and do things face-to-face, but not necessarily have to do it in a way whereby, you um, they're on a crowded train every single day or, you know, they're not getting to spend as much time with their family. And with regards to the transition toward doing everything remotely and having to lead from a distance, have you found that quite an easy thing to do or has that been sort of quite challenging? I think it's learn fast is kind of how we would describe it. And and mm. we hadn't never we'd never used sort of Microsoft Teams or or Zoom really before before the lockdown and um in, in a lot of ways, we found it quite efficient in terms of, um, you know, being able to, you know, look at things that we need to achieve um, and make sure we get stuff done. And, and I, I think that when you're working remotely and you're tasking people to get stuff done, there's no real hiding place in terms of responsibility. So, you know, you can really see that people that sort of step up to challenges or sort of people that kind of shirk away from it. And I think that, you know, that probably the fears from a lot of um, leaders it would have been that you can't see people, you can't manage people. And I think that, you know, it's actually, um, in a lot of ways, it's actually works in a, in a different way that you can actually really see the, the workload and the achievements of people remotely more than you can in the office. And um, with regards to the uh, the future, um, I think it shows, doesn't it, that there's always something to uh, to learn, no matter how established you are within business. Um, the um, the COVID nineteen pandemic has taken a lot of people back to basics. So many people who've been on the show have described it as being like their first days in business. So it goes to show that there's always something that you can still learn, even as a leader in your profession. We're never a finished product, as such, are we? We're constantly developing, and there's always ways to improve. Uh, and, 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 you know, I mean, we're in an extremely sort of fast pace scale up anyway. So, you know, we've been used to sort of almost growing 200, 300% year on year for the last sort of three or four years. And as well as launching like a, a range of innovative products, which includes stuff like antibacterial bamboo wipes, which was extremely successful. So, um, 
However, we didn't know how successful it was going to be when we launched it in January. Um, so I think that you always have to sort of be quite sort of open-minded um, and um, dynamic to you know you, you know taking on new ideas and, um, and 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 how to do thought leadership and shape and manage. And the business has really gone from strength to strength. Of course, it's only been around for four years as the Cheeky Panda, uh, but um, it has now gone up 42 places in the top 100 UK startups from 2019 and is now ranked sixth. Um, I, I think I'm right in saying, uh, Chris, um, these days. Um, so with regards to sort of building up that business, um, I'm interested to understand what were some of the key influences behind setting up that business, its um, subsequent success, and maybe some of the key influences that have sort of made you go down this uh, this career pathway. So... You know, when we looked at um, bamboo tissue, I mean, the, the reason for it was, um, you know, we live in a world of stretched resources, and um, you know, we have to have more sort of um, more renewable um, resources. And you know, bamboo is the world's fastest growing plant. It was for us was was a very obvious um, solution. And you know, when we started doing R and D in the product, and the, you know, the texture and the feel, in a lot of ways, is better than just regular tissue. We thought, well, actually, this isn't just a product that's going to be you know, a fringe product for the 1%. This can be a product that can be quite sort of mainstream. Um, so we sort of went into it with that, you know, belief. And I think that, you know, the last couple of years, we've kind of caught a wave of people looking for more sustainable and environmental goods. And, you know, as we've been sort of building our team and taking the learnings um, along the way, um, it kind of sort of puts us in a really good position as, as, as that's becoming a, a sort of a, a more emerging trend um, against where it was when we started. And, I think there's, there's 30 people in the company now and you know, we've got you know, a turnover well over £5 million. And I think that's sort of testament to you know, the fact that people want these types of products um, and um, that you, know, you can grow in a sustainable um, and ethical way. And just for those younger generations of listeners that may be looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the economy and are probably downhearted about their employment prospects, as somebody who has made a real career for themselves in business, what would your message be to those people to really get them to pick their heads up and get them on the road to success? I mean, you know, do you really want to work for a bank or do you really want to work for a consultancy? Um, you know, I, I would say that there's a real need in the world today for, um, you know, sustainable, innovative products. And, you know, that if you look around you, you know, you can just see so many things that are, you know, made out of plastic or wrapped in plastic or bottled in plastic. And if you can figure out a way to sort of make more sustainable versions of those products, then, you know, why do you need to work for someone else? Perhaps you could actually, you know, create your own thing and then run your own business. And I think that you would find that both, um, extremely challenging, but extremely satisfying. And one of the things that you know we want to do as as almost sort of green entrepreneurs and sort of pioneers in the green space is to inspire that sort of next generation to to sort of look around them and sort of say it doesn't need to be like this. And let's how can how can we make it better? Of course, and there is a fantastic entrepreneurial spirit in the UK that we're going to need over the uh, the next few months and years as we do seek to recover from COVID-19. And I do want to talk about that future just before we do wrap things up, Chris, because I'm conscious that we are beginning to run short of time on the programme today. Um, because we know that over the course of the next few months, the new normal is going to be here to stay at least until the spring, maybe longer, given the Prime Minister's announcement just two weeks ago. But over this sort of next year, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at the Cheeky Pan? as we continue to get to grips with that new normal. And when we begin to look at leaving COVID-19 behind forever, where do you see yourself being beyond then? 
I think that for our business, that um, that this will accelerate the, the the you know the adoption curves of Cheeky Panda products, and you know subscriptions are very easy way to get our products, and we'll probably it's probably go making us go two or three times faster than what we would have expected if we didn't have this type of crisis. Um, and, and, and at the same time, you know, we'll also be continuing to expand both our product ranges um, and internationally. I and mean, if anybody's listening to this podcast and they're sort of saying, well, you know, this just seems like a really interesting company to work for, then, you know, I would encourage you to, to get in touch and, you know, you, you never know, there might be an opportunity for you. And I think that, you know, if companies like us, um, you know, can really secure the screen of recovery, um, I think that the you know the innovation and the entrepreneurship that's always been in the UK DNA um, will, will will be just as important as what the tech was um, boom was in the late nineties and two thousands. It's certainly going to be an interesting time and um, we're going to have to see just um, over the next few months how that green recovery does take shape and it's something we'll certainly be keeping a very, very close eye on. And actually, Chris, um, I think it would be wonderful, just given how enlightening it's been, to welcome you onto the programme today to catch up at some point in the uh, the next year or so and have you back on our programme just to see how that green recovery is taking shape and just to what extent the Cheeky Panda is at the forefront of that. Uh, and I'd love to share my insights with that. And uh, thank you very much for having me on today. It's been a real pleasure for us, Chris, to welcome you onto our programme and such a pleasure as well. We're really, really grateful for your time. It's so, so important to get the voices, the authentic voices at that of British industry out into the national sphere. And uh, most importantly, until we do touch base again in future, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world too. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I'd also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for us to welcome Chris Forbes, co-founder of the Cheeky Panda, onto today's podcast. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders' Council Chairman. Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership. Lord Blunkett has been a member of the Upper House of Parliament since August 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being. 
and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did want to do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the, public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. 
but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time hindsight is a wonderful thing but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government i think that with some hiccups and mistakes they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances and you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they 
you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. 
Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role and that is about leadership nationally locally in the private and the public sector people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.